0: This is a follow-up to our episode on the Westboro Baptist Church, a story we call Twitter Saves Megan. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Do you still have faith? And if so, in what? I'm not religious anymore. But I absolutely am a believer in, in humanity, in the power of human connection, in the idea of grace. You know, people, people had grace for me when I seemed not to deserve it the most. That grace, I, I really believe in it. So I, I, I will say I'm not religious anymore, but I absolutely still feel like a believer in so many ways. Megan Phelps Roper was an enthusiastic, true-blue believer in the brutal God worshipped by the Westboro Baptist Church. She, too, was dedicated to the cause of shocking people into submission, the truth always a knife, never soft, never kind. She was doggedly dedicated to the scripture as interpreted by their leader, Fred Phelps, through the lens of hyper-Calvinism, a belief system in which few were elect and most were damned by a God that reveled in the violent destruction of sinners. They believed that everything was predetermined by God, and therefore everything was perfect and unchangeable, no matter how ugly or cruel. To Megan, Fred's name was Gramps, and he was beloved the way a kindly old grandfather is. The only difference being that he happened to be their prophet, a man who trafficked in homophobic slurs and jubilations at the deaths of soldiers, AIDS victims, and children killed in school shootings. But as he had taught his entire family since each of them were born, this was the ultimate expression of neighborly love, telling someone the truth so they might have time to change their ways. But as he had taught his entire family since each one of them were born, this here, this was the ultimate expression of neighborly love, telling the truth. As she was growing up, Megan would visit him sometimes to ask questions about the scriptures as he sat watching her behind his large wooden desk, wearing a white cowboy hat with sunken, cloudy ice blue eyes. Though she saw Gramps as the ultimate orator of God and the WBC as the one true church of Jesus Christ, Megan was not a blind believer, if you can believe that. The Phelps family put high priority on studying, grades, and on higher education. They encouraged questions about the stories and messages and history of the Bible, and they came together to work out any apparent contradictions, all in their very lawyerly way. When Megan came to her mother, Shirley, concerned about why God had done certain things that she felt were, well, cruel, Her mother would stroke her hair and call her doll, as she always did, and she would tell her that though we can't understand why God does what he does, he will always take care of her, as long as she follows his word. And so far, to Megan, it was true. God had blessed her greatly with a very happy life on a suburban compound with her beloved siblings and cousins, a life she still looks back on fondly. I've been nervous that you're all going to be mad at me if I look too empathetically toward this family that spent their lives trying to terrorize mine, many of ours in fact. It goes without saying that the WBC's tactics are absolutely despicable. But it's important to note that those who have left this cult, as some have described it, are well aware of the harm that they've caused throughout their lifetimes and hope to repent, not to God, but to, well, everyone. I will tell you that it was reading Megan's heart-wrenching memoir, Unfollow, that pulled us into this story, that made us want to study this congregation in depth. We would have never tried to understand these cartoonish supervillains already fading from collective memory if not for the fact that we saw something relatable in her story. A story of secrets, of family of rejection and loss, of falling in love for the first time, of starting everything over from scratch. Megan's story also felt very relevant to our show and to where we are right now as a country, as it's a story of a slow de-radicalization from extreme beliefs. And not only that, but it's a story about Twitter, a genuine story of social media debates actually saving a life. Since the early 1990s, the Westboro Baptist Church has known how to take advantage of technology, using faxes and emails to spread their increasingly vulgar messages. Then they seized on the early internet, creating their infamous resource, godhatesfags.com. But what medium of the 21st century could be more matched to their quick, quippy cruelty than the barren hellscape of Twitter? Megan took to it immediately, blasting out an average of 150 viciously offensive tweets per day. Megan had been the obvious choice for the Twitter voice of the WBC, smart, a good writer, in her early 20s, so better able to relate to the youths of the web, someone who could go head-to-head with her categorical knowledge of the Bible, shutting down the God-is-love crowd with just 140 characters. The Twitter account was basically a virtual picketing, their messaging as inflammatory as their signage had always been, met with now a digital sea of comments, mostly angry or sarcastic, some peppered with empathetic attempts at combating her biblical stance with other interpretations and conflicting biblical passages." But Megan, like all the believers in the WBC, had long been a stonewall of certainty about her own church's unblemished rightness. But that didn't keep her from truly enjoying a good debate. She loved working out the philosophical puzzles that people presented to her, and she also loved soaking in the persecution of all those cruel comments. One of Megan's most ardent Twitter nemeses was none other than Kevin Smith, director of Clerks, Dogma, Jay and Silent Bob, and most importantly, he had a brief arc on Degrassi. This was the tweet from Megan on World AIDS Day 2009 that first caught his ire, quote, Thank God for AIDS. You won't repent of your rebellion that brought his wrath on you in this incurable scourge, so expect more and worse. Kevin, after a deep breath, started a Twitter campaign called Hashtag Megan, encouraging his followers to fill her inbox to the absolute brim with attempts to persuade her away from the WBC ideology. When the church picketed the Sundance Film Festival, guess who came out wearing his own sign, picketing back at the picketers? It was Kevin Smith. And what did his sign say, you ask? God hates Phelps, except Megan. God thinks Megan's hot. (laughs) This is like an odd choice, but okay, I see what you were doing. Obviously, she was getting a lot of attention online. It became such that no matter what she was doing, cooking, flying to picket a funeral, battered down with as many vicious signs as she could hold, she would still be glued to the screen as she received and responded to thousands and thousands of replies. But slowly, unbeknownst to her all these perspectives from so many different kinds of people with so many kinds of beliefs were chipping away at that stone wall of certainty. All of a sudden, there was this frightening twinge deep down inside her, one getting more and more difficult to ignore. One of her reply guys went by CG, and he was a lawyer in his 30s. That's all she knew about him. But she particularly enjoyed their back and forths, his intelligent, matter-of-fact questions, the way he asked about her life and not just her beliefs, how they could talk about normal things too, almost seeming to forget the rest. One day, when he tweeted about his superior Words with Friends skills, she impulsively gave him her username, and they began to play. Well, constantly. Not only that, but the Words with Friends chat option opened up a different kind of space for conversation, not limited to any character count and shielded away from the prying eyes of the public. A private chat. As you might imagine, dating in the Westboro Baptist Church is, well, weird. With the extremely limited number of outsiders admitted into the church, there weren't that many options for future spouses. And of course, it was extremely unlikely that anyone would be allowed to marry outside the congregation. So when Megan began this private chat with a man completely unaffiliated with the WBC, an atheist for Christ's sake, it was a big deal. But she had a handle on it. She thought she could keep it friendly, keep her romantic feelings at bay. Well, we all know how well that goes. All of a sudden, Megan had a secret. At night, she messaged with CG on Words with Friends, talked about music, talked about books. When they did talk about beliefs, he would always challenge the cruel tactics of the church, telling her he didn't understand how this woman he was talking to could possibly be the same one he saw on the news standing outside of a funeral singing a parody pop song about how the deceased were burning in hell. He asked her how she could possibly do that to the families, telling her that she was better than that, smarter than that, kinder than that that he had seen those things in her. He would attempt to fill her beliefs with nuance, talking about the category between the elect and the damned, just people trying their best to be good. Whenever they began to fight about the WBC tactics or her beliefs, he would tactfully steer the conversation back to her favorite things, to Harry Potter, to Mumford and Sons, to Dexter, He was a hipster, after all, she said, and he would give her new music, and in a true but twisted-up Garden State moment, she would lie on her bed, eyes closed, with her headphones on, listening to the mixes he made for her, the Abbott brothers, John Roderick, blind pilot. Megan was falling in love for the first time. As the months wore on and their conversations grew deeper, she still knew there was so little hope. She tried her best not to think about C.G., to not let him distract her from God. But, of course, she sometimes did let herself daydream, that he would one day be called to Topeka, that he would hear something true in her words— in the Bible, hear God's call, and just walk into the church service one day, ready for this new life. She couldn't help but want it. Through the doubt, Megan continued to message with CG every night as they suspended themselves in a precarious little world all their own, neither of them willing or even able to articulate what was happening, lest the whole thing implode. One night, though, she dreamed of him. She dreamed of embracing this man that she could finally see clearly, prophetically, his blonde curls in her hands. She awoke in a terror, flooded with feeling, and she knew she had to cut it off immediately because the dream had done what dreams can do. It had forced her to feel what she had been desperately trying not to feel—all the love and desire for something other than God. After a day of searing anxiety, she logged on to tell C.G. that she couldn't talk to him anymore— that she was deleting words with friends. But before she did, right then, he said it. The words that she had so longed to hear. And then, the words that would break her heart. You know I love you. You know I do. It's not just the idea of you. I know you. You also know I'm not coming to Topeka. plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor
1: today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price
0: line. After that, Megan tried to go back to her old life, to the comfort of her certainty, to the family and community that she had always known. But the stability that had been there was crumbling too the man who founded the Westboro Baptist Church, the man who had formed the entire framework of everything, was sick. He was old. His mind was slowly going. He was dying. Without Fred, who would Westboro be? Enter Steve Drain, one of the few outsiders ever admitted into the ranks of the WBC. He had come into contact with the group while making a documentary about them called Hate hoping to expose them as the hate group he considered them to be. But bafflingly, the experience instead converted Steve to the WBC, and he moved his wife and daughters to Topeka and on to the suburban compound in 2001. He immediately became an extremely vocal and extremely annoying member. And now, ten years later, as Fred's health ailed, It was pretty obvious that Shirley was next in line to steer the ship of the WBC. But then, out of nowhere, with one little letter, everything was upturned. Steve Drain had assembled a shadowy group of Westboro men called the Elders who were actively usurping control from this woman, who by virtue of that alone could not serve as a leader. The letter was the beginning of a shame campaign, the elders accusing Shirley of sinful wrath against other members. At the WBC, any accusation of wrongdoing is taken very seriously, and this was no exception. Shirley was forced to fade back fast and contemplate her sins, lest she be banished for good. That's when the elders slowly started implementing new rules without group consensus. They started making the women wear more conservative clothing, high-necked shirts, legs covered down to the knee, and any elder could disapprove of any woman's clothing and force them to go and change. There was this new required submission of all the women to their husbands or fathers or even older brothers. It became the only way for any of them to have a voice. They had to talk to their elder. As strange as it may seem, before this usurping, Westboro worked like this. If anyone disagreed with a decision that affected the group, it didn't happen. Things always had to be unanimous. During this time, Grace was in her late teens, and she had also become a target of a shame campaign, having been involved in some marital drama between members that painted her as a whore, and it became very possible that she was going to be excommunicated. This, of course, enraged Megan, who attempted to speak out against what was happening to both Grace and her mother and to the church at large, but even Shirley refused to speak ill of the elders, telling Megan to obey their orders lest she lose the favor of God. And Steve Drain kept the ball rolling, started changing up the Westboro protest tactics in ways that Megan found, frankly, unbiblical. For example, photoshopping themselves picketing the royal wedding in an attempt to trick publications into actually thinking they were there and covering the story. Before this, the WBC had done a lot of things, but they had never lied. That was a cardinal sin to the group. And now Steve was here, pumping out lies and pressuring her to retweet his lies. She knew that Twitter was going to destroy her over this hypocrisy, but she felt she had no choice. When they called her a liar, she knew they were right. And for the very first time, she knew that Westboro was wrong. And if they could be wrong about this then what the fuck else could they have been wrong about? The panic attack that followed was a long, terrifying moment where she finally let all those questions in that she had been pushing down for months. She let in all those doubts that felt like they had been cutting her to shreds. It was dizzying, shattering, sickening. This would mean losing everything. But it was too late. There was no going back. For weeks, she went through the motions, terrified of pulling Grace into her new world of doubt and terror, of the great unknown that felt like death. But finally, she broke And she told Grace everything, and she told her about her thoughts of leaving for good. Finally, the day came. They heard that Grace was going to be kicked out. Megan said they had to leave immediately, that very day. Surely... Clearly broken down by the elders and afraid to speak, it seemed, for the first time in her life, took Megan to see Gramps. He was sweet to her at first, as he'd always been. Gramps asked her not to hurt her mother like this. And then, when Megan was unable to reply without sobbing, He continued in a new tone, a tone of disgust. Well, I thought we had a jewel this time, Cheryl. Looks like we got it all wrong. Megan turned and ran out of the room. As they packed their things in the home they had shared with their family all their lives, Each sibling and cousin came in to say their cautious goodbyes, their last sniffling attempts at getting her to stay with their letters and drawings, with their memories and the words of God. At the same time, though, there was a palpable new feeling that Megan was an outsider and she could feel their trepidation at her presence. She was no longer one of them. Just like that, she was an Esau. It was that same story of Esau and Jacob, the one Shirley had told her daughters while they played with Barbies. God had pre-elected Jacob and damned Esau, not because of anything they did or didn't do, but just because of the pleasure of his will. And now, two of her beloved daughters, including her oldest, were leaving her, walking into hell for all eternity. And in her mind, this had to be God's plan. There was nothing she could do about it. Shirley's face twisted in agony. She started weeping. She could not choose her daughter, even then. She could not walk away from the elders, from the God that she had been promised since she was born would torture her in eternity if she ever made the wrong move. In their very last moment together, she held Megan a long time and said, finally, you can always come back. But Megan knew that she would likely never see her mother again. Never even speak to her again. Because still, no matter all that she has lost, Shirley believes she can still be a Jacob, even if everyone she has ever loved becomes an Esau. As Megan and Grace walked out to the van with their last bags, they walked on the lawn past the trampoline and the pool past the houses of their siblings and cousins, their home fading behind them, all of it lost to them now. And then Megan realized, in a shame-filled irony, that now the only people who could truly understand how she felt this total rejection from the family she loved were the queer people that she had spent her life hurting, attacking, praying for their deaths, telling them that they were rejected by God himself. Everything was coming into dizzying focus. Everything she had ever done. Where they would end up next would be decided almost entirely by a TV show her older brother had once liked, Deadwood. Well, that and the fact that though he was some 400 miles from Deadwood, CG did in fact live in South Dakota. Megan searched through the photos of different Airbnbs until she found a beautiful attic space that overlooked the small town. When they arrived and walked down the main street, passing shops and bars and restaurants, they had a strange, frightening and elating feeling, something completely new, the feeling of possibility outside of calculated certainty. Even though they had left the church, Megan and Grace were still Phelps ropers and their hosts soon figured out just who they were. But regardless, they invited them to stay longer. They took them on hikes through the Black Hills. They talked to them at length about the Bible, which they happened to know very well, too. They would make them pancakes and coffee in the morning. They'd read together at the table. As Christmas time neared, Megan and Grace dreaded the day, which had always been cursed in their parody songs, such as Santa Claus Will Drag You to Hell and their version of The Twelve Days of Christmas that included lines like Three bloody rectums, two shaven gerbils, and a vat of KY jelly. Lest we forget who we're dealing with here. But, much to their joy, the couple did not decorate, did not celebrate, barely even acknowledge the day at all, and instead the four of them just watched Lord of the Rings all day together. They also talked even more than usual, and that's when they found out that the reason they weren't celebrating was because they were Jehovah's Witnesses. When they invited Megan and Grace to their service, Megan looked around and saw a room of true believers, just like she had been. She was realizing now that there were so many ways to believe, so many ways to be in the world. The world that had so far treated her and Grace with a kindness they didn't feel like they deserved after all the things that they had done. CG had been right. There were no elect, and there were no damned. What mattered is that they were just people trying to be good. Megan reinstalled Words with Friends. She and C.G. would strike up this relationship again, but he would approach her exit with caution, encouraging her to consider everything, to take time to make sure that the change in her was indeed permanent, and not in any way influenced by him, because after all, he was a little bit concerned that she had up and moved to his home state. But they kept talking, every day, And it fell back into their pattern from before. And both of them started to feel all those feelings again. And this time, there was real hope, real possibility. Megan was concerned that he was never going to actually meet up with her in person after a couple catfishy moments where he ended up ditching out at the last minute. And then, just like that... Out of nowhere, he arrived in Deadwood unannounced and told her to meet him and his friend at a casino of all places. At a small table, surrounded by the flashing lights and chaotic sounds of sin itself, they sat looking at each other for the very first time. And for the first time, anything was possible. Four years later, she and C.G. would get married and they would have a baby girl. She would spend the next years hoping to make things right, speaking out in support of the LGBTQ community, giving talks on the mindsets of extremists and her own de-radicalization, apologizing but never shying away from taking responsibility for all the harm that she caused, Things that would always haunt her. She talks a lot about how to slowly change people's minds. How to use empathetic interventions. She tells about her own experience. How people on Twitter were willing to work with her. To understand that, at the end of the day, this is how she was raised. People who were willing to find common ground where they could. Without resorting to what she had done all that cruelty. Continuously, Megan's been amazed by all the grace that's been extended to her, despite everything that she's done. Eventually, she would turn all this into a TED talk, which would go viral, and then she would write her memoir, Unfollow, that we used for this episode. And where did our darling Grace end up? Well, she's become a world traveler, a surfer, and also, more reductively, but still true, a major social media hottie. Even now, Megan shows up on her family's birthdays, but she doesn't knock on the door because, the one time she tried, they just turned off the lights and pretended they weren't there. So she just leaves cards for them and letters in the crack of the door. Now she monitors their Twitter to see what they're tweeting about, to see where their heads are at, so she can send them more letters, encouraging them in their own language, through their own sense of reality, to change their ways. The letters have always been one sided. They have never written back. But she's confident that they read every single one. And who knows? Maybe it's working, slowly. Maybe they can undo what one man did. An abusive man who created himself in the image of an abusive god and indoctrinated each child into his delusion a man excommunicated from his own church at the end of his life for going soft, for changing. What's even left anymore? In Louis Theroux's last installment of his documentary series on the Westboro Baptist Church, which we highly recommend, it's 2019, and Shirley has now lost most of her kids to the outside— Her face is creased, constantly crestfallen, no longer the cackling spitfire she once was. When she's asked on video if she misses her children, she starts the same monologue she always gives about her true dedication being to the word of God only, that if it is the pleasure of his will that she lose everyone she loves, so be it. But then, her eyes start to well. Her voice catches. She smiles to try to hold back tears. The moment breaks open. I don't know how to describe it exactly. She just gives up. They were my children, she says. They were my children. Surely, if you happen to be listening... It's not too late. I know that many of us in the last five years have been cleaved away from people we loved by rigid, sudden changes in political and spiritual ideology that have rendered a chasm between us that only cracks wider every day. This crack seems irreparable. Like there are two Earths now— two realities. We can see the people we've loved on the other side, but they're getting smaller and smaller and smaller as they get farther and farther away from us. Does the Phelps family deserve our empathy? Are you mad at me? why am I so desperately sad when I have every right to be enraged at what they've done to me and to so many people I care about and to the nation at large with all the harm that they've caused? But here's the thing, me, myself, personally, the only thing I can hope for is a reconciliation of some kind, some kind of restorative, justice. When it comes to talking with people who hold harmful beliefs, many of us have given up in total frustration and outrage and in pain, all justifiably. But maybe it's good, just a little hopeful, to remember that Megan's story is not the only one like it. Though the online conversations she had didn't change her mind at the time, their thoughtful questions and uncruel, rational statements lived inside her and occasionally rose up to the surface, forcing her to contemplate her worldview, if only for a flicker of a moment when she left her entire life straight out into the great woods of the black hills of South Dakota, the great woods of the world, what remained? Those questions, those small moments of connection, those attempts at understanding were there. They offered her another life. Small breadcrumbs to follow to an unknown home in an unimaginable new world. A place where maybe she could do some good. This was American Hysteria. Make sure you check out Megan Phelps Roper's memoir, Unfollow. If you love our show and want even more information about the Westboro Baptist Church and the dynamics within it, consider becoming a patron to get access to Hysteria Home Companion, the talk show where Miranda and I give you all the hottest gossip from the cutting room floor, with previous episodes including the polyamorous cult of Ayn Rand, the alien experiences of celebrities, and all the secrets behind the extreme haunted house McKamey Manor. So just go to patreon.com/slash to get access to Hysteria Home Companion and more. If you want to follow us on social media, it's at Amer Hysteria on Twitter and at American Hysteria Podcast on Instagram. Something that really helps our show out is if you leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. And head to AmericanHysteria.com if you'd like to pick up some of our fast dwindling merch. This episode has sound designed by Como Studios and was produced by Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we'll be back soon with a lighter topic. We hope. Have a great week. It's
1: happening daily. MyPatriotSupply.com Friends, hello. I'm Mike Rugnetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the Internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the Internet and the world because of the Internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts.